Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. The challenge is how do you tell a story that's more or less chronological and not bore the hell out of the audience? And Joseph Campbell said, there's a moment in all of our lives, not just superheroes, but in the everyday person, that we truly become the hero of our own life. And you start to think about real people, but you take the story of real people and creating the mythology, if you will, of their life in a structure, in a narrative structure that is not that different from how one would approach a fiction film. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 33. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the documentarylife.com slash academy. If this is your first time tuning in, or maybe I should say downloading, we here at TDL set out to inspire and to inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary lives. We do this through the sharing of ideas and experiences here within the Doc Lifer community. We do this through examining topics like fundraising, distribution, or filming documentaries overseas. And we do this through our shared conversations with other documentary industry guests. I'm often hearing from other doc lifers that they'd love to know if there are some ways in which they might make their film a bit more cinematic. Now, I'm not entirely sure what they mean by cinematic per se. Are they referring to the look of the film? Do they want something that looks, you know, impressive on the big screen? Do they want something that will elicit great emotion, say, in the way of some romance during wartime epic? Uh, But to me, the idea of making something, whether an independent feature or a documentary film, more cinematic is just too generic a term. I don't exactly know what you're referring to here. Not to mention the title is, it's a little dismissive of documentary films. You know, almost implying that doc films must somehow be inferior in, in look and feel to a feature film. Anyone who's watched a doc film in the past 20 years knows better than that. Herzog, Gibney, Morris, or just a few of the bigger names that come to mind. So, in an effort to introduce some ways in which we can all make our documentary films better films, in our first segment today, I'm going to be talking about five ways to make your documentary stand out. And if that also makes your film more cinematic in your mind, well, the more power to you. And after that, we'll get to our Doc Life or Community Question of the Week, followed by our shared conversation with a doc industry guest, the Academy Award-nominated documentary scriptwriter Daniel Rame, whose documentary scriptwriting masterclass has recently been making big waves in the documentary filmmaking community. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. 
There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic. Links to mentioned websites or resources. Just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. For today's initial segment, I've put together a list of five ways in which I think we can all make our documentaries stand out. And I also think can probably be employed to produce a better trailer or fundraising film. The first of these five ways deals with visually making your film more impressive than others. And as much as I, in some ways, I wanted to avoid putting this one on the list for fear of everyone going out and buying one of these and filling every other frame of their film with these kinds of shots, it would be irresponsible of me, in a way, not to acknowledge the power of aerials. Nowadays, to us independent filmmakers, more commonly known as drone shots. We've all seen them now. Even the giant news corporations like the BBC or Al Jazeera, they have drone teams that use these shots in order to make their news reports more impressive. The drone shot has made accessible to us doc filmmakers the wide sweeping landscape shots or crane movements that had once really been reserved to bigger budget Hollywood movies. There's just something about a drone shot that when done right and employed in the right fashion in one's film can give can really give the feeling that a film and its content is something that's bigger in scope. Now, when not done right or when it's used for a large percentage of a film, it can often give the, the opposite effect. It can belie that the filmmaker is really a bit of an amateur who believes that he and his $800 drone doing overhead shots of sexy beaches and, and young white people partying on Thai islands, it's far more important than whatever story he, he or she was supposedly promising to tell you. You know what I call those? Travel videos not documentary films, and there's a great place for those kinds of videos, and it's not on Netflix or the cinema or your documentary grant application. It's called YouTube, and if you're a fan of those videos, well, that's totally fine, and, and you're in luck, as there are about, I don't know, three million of those to choose from. So make sure when you want to have aerials in your film or your fundraising piece that you are very intentional when, where, and how you place them. Don't overtax your film with these impressive shots. Otherwise, they'll, by virtue of oversaturation, risk losing their impressiveness. Also, consider simply hiring someone out to get the kinds of shots that you want instead of, of running out and buying your own drone. I know that may not sound as fun or glorifying as whizzing around with your quadcopter getting all those really amazing looking 4K shots, but the truth of the matter is, if you don't have the time that's required to learn how to properly fly a drone and collect beautiful aerials, you, you might be sorely disappointed at the results when you take a look at your dailies. It's not nearly as straightforward as you might think. It might, in fact, be more time-efficient and cost-effective to hire out a professional to collect those drone shots for you. Oh, and should you ever need someone in Asia to do this, let me know. I have an amazing aerial cinematographer for you. His name is Patrick, and, and he did the aerials for, for Elvis of Cambodia. And he's a really cool dude to work with. 
My second suggestion for making your documentary stand out deals with music for your film. It's true that there are plenty of inexpensive and even some free options available out there. And and trust me, I've used plenty over the years on, on smaller projects. But I'm going to argue that you look into getting an original score made for your film. I cannot overstate how this will set your doc film apart from others. Too many doc films out there employ the copyright-free route. And, and, and I talk about the various differences in uses of, of public domain, royalty-free, and creative commons way back in the, the early days of the podcast. It was episode four, which was about score for your doc. It's definitely worth going back into the archives and checking out if you haven't already done so. But, but, but having your own original music that is specifically made for the scenes of your film, it can truly separate your film from the others. I remember when I was doing the final edit for Journey to Kathmandu and I was placing original score, which was created by uh, Portland, Oregonian musicians Samuel Ross and, and Jared Jensen, and I was placing their music into, into my timeline. I was essentially replacing temporary tracks that I had had in various forms you know, throughout the edit for about three years. When I was doing this and watching scenes with the proper score in place, it knocked my documentary filmmaking socks off. My film was suddenly transformed into into something far more impressive, uh, dare I say, f- more, far more filmic than ever I'd, I'd really hoped for. Some of the visuals practically leapt off, leapt off the screen and, and 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 right into my heart. It sounds romantic, doesn't it? But 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 as such as I as I sound like I'm over dramatizing this, I truly was blown away by the emotional weight that the original score had given my baby. There's just something about having an original score made for your visuals and your story that, that is one of the most refreshing and brilliant, not to mention underappreciated, aspects of your documentary film. Think how those long takes in, in, in Koyana Scotsy might be without those you know organ notes of Philip Glass, or how the animated documentary Waltz with Bashir might be without the magic of Max Richter. Incidentally, I'll mention here in, in an upcoming episode, we'll be talking with, with composer Pro, Peter Broderick, who's written some of the more stunning scores for documentary films in recent memory. Moving on to number three in my five ways to make your documentary stand out, it's a bit more specific than some of the, some of the above. It's about depth of field in your interviews. I've already talked about the importance of the documentary interview in ways and in, in ways in which to make to make it better. It was a fairly recent episode, number twenty-five, called 10 Hot Tips for Your Interviews." So I won't bother you with with re- rehashing that here for sure. And, and instead, I wanted to give you something a bit more detailed that I know will help visually set your film apart from others. When you can, and you really should try and do this as often as pos- as often as possible, though with more roving cinema verite stuff, it's going to be less appropriate. You should always try and achieve some depth of field, at least in your interviews. Even if you think that you'll only see the visual portion from the interview a small amount in the actual film, you know, in terms of screen time, depth of field will will separate your interview from a lot of documentary interviews because, well, for one, a number of documentaries are still being shot with, with fixed lens cameras, like handheld camcorders, or even the older, more expensive prosumer cameras, which, which those cameras back then didn't have the option of, of intercha- interchangeable lenses. Of course, DSLRs have really changed the landscape with their ability to, to interchange lenses at will. Nonetheless, it's important to remember that regardless of your camera or lens, lens capabilities, you should always try and purposefully play with depth of field in your interviews. For example, in many of my earlier docs, because I was using a prosumer camera like the Sony V1U or 
Um, I'm sure you remember the Panasonic HVX200. Hell, I know people still using it. It's a pretty awesome camera. I didn't easily have the option of using different lenses with different focal lengths, unless I wanted to buy an, an add-on adapter like the, you might remember, the Lettuce 35 Ultimate Lens Adapter. So, so I had to get creative. There are some different ways to achieve depth of field when using a camera with a fixed lens. But generally, I simply tried to make sure that my subject was a decent distance from a from a cool, appropriate looking background, and then I would open my f stops all the way. Of course, if you if you're you're doing this outside, um, you'd have to put on some ND filters, right? Otherwise, you'd simply have an overexposed image. The ND filters are going to to compensate for the open aperture. With a camera that gives you the option of interchanging lenses, your work is a little easier because you have different focal lengths of lenses to choose from. Do you want to use a 35mm? Do you want to use a 50mm or maybe even a 70mm? But really the idea is still the same when it comes to your f-stops. The more you open them up, of course, the more separation you create with your subject and anything in the foreground and, and background. Of course, the opposite's true. The more you close those down, the more you um, lose that separation and the more things are in focus in your frame. And that, of course, is ultimately the whole idea by creating this really nice looking depth of field. You're trying to make it so that everything is not in focus. You're trying to give weight and importance to your interview subject, in particular with camcorders and other fixed lens type cameras. Unless you do some of the above, some of what I just mentioned, you'll get that uh, that pretty flat, all in focus look that you that can make your interviews and your interviewees a bit less uh, impressive. Giving depth of field to your interviews also just gives a more professional, more polished, more filmic look period. In cinema, we are accustomed to not seeing everything in focus. Unless, of course, it's a, a landscape shot or something or, or an aerial shot. We are accustomed to the director or the DP showing us what they want us to see. It's all part of the language of cinema, right? So employing these same ideas and techniques in your documentaries is simply using that language of cinema, and therefore you'll, you'll hopefully be achieving similar results. Number four of my five ways to make your documentary stand out is create a shot list. Through your research of your film and its subject and through meeting some of its key players, through the manifesting that's done behind your eyelids, a la uh, famous editor Walter Murch's approach to, to editing a film, you will surely have come up with some pretty killer ideas for shots. So write them down, and as soon as you think of them, no matter where you are, because nine times out of ten, when you're out somewhere and you're thinking about your film, it's oftentimes attached to an ingenious idea for a shot. And if you don't write it down, you may forget this bit of amazingness. So start making a list of, of, of these shots. And yes, of course, many of your shots are going to be sparked by interviews conducted with your main subjects, but we have a word for that kind of footage. B-roll. And I'm not necessarily talking about B-roll here. I'm talking about the kinds of epic or cool-looking shots that are, that, are, that are going to best tell the emotional core of your story and can be used in, in their own sequences, perhaps. Perhaps, you know, even in a metaphorical way, seemingly unattached to an actual story thread from your film. These might be moving shots, uh, achieved with a Fisher dolly and tracks, or something more, more portable like a pocket dolly. Or maybe it's a crane shot that starts up higher on a building and, and lands on a person. Or, or maybe there's no movement at all. Perhaps it's a lock-off time-lapse of a brilliant desert beneath a New Mexico sky. Whatever the case, planning shots beforehand allows you the ability to really ponder the look and feel of your film, as opposed to the typical way of, of shooting an interview and then maybe grabbing B-roll afterwards that's, that's based on content from that interview. 
The final recommendation that I have for making your documentary film stand out is probably going to surprise you, and it deals with script writing and the approach of script writing out your characters before you actually find them. I know it, it, it sounds counterintuitive to the process, which most of us doc filmmakers are familiar with, simply grabbing your camera and, and getting out there to find the story. I mean, yeah, we, we generally have an idea for a documentary film before we start shooting it, but I'm, I'm talking about actually figuring out the kinds of characters or the archetypes, if you will, beforehand, right? A sort of guide sheet that will then allow you to find those people who will best fit, fit those, those archetypes. It's sometimes the nature of documentary filmmaking, as I said, to simply pick up your camera and start rolling on people and places in hopes of discovering the story and, and the story's characters in this fashion. But I'm suggesting that if you can build out the characters beforehand, you will actually save yourself an inordinate amount of time filming, not to mention drive space, which means money and time in the editing room, which means money. A typical way in which I might do this, and we definitely have done this with our current project, uh, Elvis of Cambodia, is to, through the time and effort put into research and maybe carving out what we anticipate anticipate the film might be about, is to get some idea of the key players involved with the topic of your film. And from there, starting to figure out what the protagonists and antagonists might be like that are involved in the film subject. What are the true story archetypes that might give your, your film a more interesting feel to it? Simply put, what might the bad guys and the good guys and the really interesting guys and, and those quirky guys, what might they look like in your film and its story? And then from there, you can go back to your list of people that you've earmarked as the key players in your film subject matter and see if you can't get a match. Once you've pared this list down, you can then begin meeting with and filming your characters. Hopefully, this will save you time and money that would have otherwise been spent simply going out with your camera and, and, and using the camera to search for the characters who would best tell your story concept. To recap the five ways to make your documentary stand out. 1. Aerial shots. 2. Original score. 3. Depth of field and interviews. 4. Make a shot list. and 5. Prescript your characters. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Doc Lifer community question of the week. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is, for the most part, is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film. But how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market? Or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, The Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We'll see you there.
Welcome back to the Documentary Life. And now for the Doc Lifer community question of the week. This one comes from William here in the UK who had a question about last week's episode, more specifically our Doc Industry guest who was the journalist, Nate Thayer. Thayer was responsible for the first interview in 20 years with the architect of the Cambodian genocide Pol Pot when he was invited to witness the people's trial of the war criminal deep in the jungles of Cambodia. It was episode 32, and it's available for download in the TDL archives simply by going to um, www.thedocumentarylife.com. Thayer had spent well over a decade in and out of the jungles of Cambodia, basically trying to get this kind of scoop of a lifetime. When he did manage to get some of the first images and interview with Pol Pot in 20 years, the global news community came calling. In particular, ABC News Nightline and the rather famous host, Ted Koppel. As Thayer explains it, he met Koppel in Bangkok one evening and, and made a handshake deal with Koppel to use images, footage, and the interview, but only exclusively for the Nightline show. Unfortunately, within approximately 24 hours of that meeting, those images were being seen all over the world and with the ABC branding on it. Thayer would end up suing ABC and settling out of court after a very long battle. He would also be the first, and to this day I believe the only, person ever to turn down the prestigious Peabody Award, an award given out for journalism excellence. In fact, Ted Koppel would end up accepting the award on his behalf. William from the UK writes, Nate Thayer gives an anecdote about how he attended the Peabody Awards, even though he had refused the award himself. I want to believe Nate's version of events. I think what he did from a journalistic standpoint was monumental, but I somehow can't shake the feeling that he maybe embellishes some of that story. I mean, did he really tell Koppel off? Did Koppel really have to admit this on stage in front of peers at a big awards ceremony? Well, William, it's funny you should ask about that. I can understand why after hearing a story like that, a person might have some suspicions. Totally get it. But after my conversation with Nate, I did some further research, and I found this gem. Those of you who've read your liner notes will have seen the name of Nate Thayer. It's up on YouTube, and it's the entire acceptance speech by Koppel. And he basically spends the majority of the time talking about Nate and Nate's refusal to accept the Peabody. It's pretty amazing video. So I've put it up on the, in the show notes for this episode. So definitely check it out by, by going to the documentarylife.com uh, website. Anyhow, that was the Doc Life for Community Question of the Week. If you've got any suggestions for the show or recommendations for doc industry guests or any other kind of feedback, email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. And your email could be on a future Doc Life for Community Question of the Week. Again, that email, it's the best way to get your voice heard and the best way that I can tailor the documentary life to you. So do drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. When we come back, we'll speak with Academy Award nominee scriptwriter Daniel Rame. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. As we enter into our second year of the program, you know, we've talked about a great variety of topics here on on TDL, including things like, you know, 
fundraising, uh, shooting docs overseas. We've had, you know, we've talked about gear a bit, uh, scoring for your documentary. Um, we've had people on to talk about legal issues. Interestingly enough, one topic we haven't really delved into a ton um, oh. is the idea of script writing for your documentary film. I'm excited to do that today because you are the man to be able to to um, inform us about that and and get us inspired to be to be working in that direction because you know it's it doesn't seem like and you can help me with this it doesn't seem like it's a particular topic that um, that really is covered an awful lot when it comes to documentary films you know when you think yeah. when you hear and think about script writing and screenplays it's always connected with the narrative world and features and so. So right. I'm excited to hear about that in our world, in the documentary world. And of course, another big part of what we're talking about today is the release of your film, your latest documentary, Harold and Lillian, um, a Hollywood love story. And uh, I just saw that. I had the pleasure of watching that recently. So I'm, I'm eager to talk about that with you. So terrific. Yes. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being on your show and I'm a fan of your show. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to your podcast. I think it's a great contribution to our the work we're trying to do and uh, the community building. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. It's uh, definitely a, a big part of what we're trying to do with TDL, with the documentary life. I think before we get into the script writing segment and before we get into Harold and Lillian, it might help um, it might help me and it might help our listeners to get a little bit about your background, where you came from in terms of your interest and your passion and uh, of with filmmaking, how that came sure. to be. Sure. My very first um, encounter making films was, uh, I think I was about 20 years old and I was born in Israel but raised in the U.S. Okay. and had the chance to go back there in my late teens, uh, my family moved back and I ended up staying there by myself for a while. And, and what happened is that I ended up serving three years in the Israeli defense forces as a documentary filmmaker. You've got to be kidding me. I literally was ready to make sort of a joke and a remark about, Hey, did you do your conscription while you were there? (laughs) Uh, Right. Yeah, I mean, that that was in my, you know, internally, I felt like that's, you know, I had a, a, a deep interest in film yeah. um, dating back to, you know, just like every every other kid who sees, you know, Superman or whatever and sort of. But so what I did for three years in these really defense forces was um, I followed a, a theatrical like a unit that entertained uh, a unit of like theater and music that entertained people that lived in underground air raid shelters for months on end. And, and, you know, it's interesting because then I, you know, I had all this equipment. So I started making short films for Mm. myself too, Mm. but looking at the world through a lens of, you know, at that time it was like a super VHS video game. Yes. VHS, right. right. I was going to ask what gear you were using then or what you were shooting uh, on. Yeah. Big, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, SVHS connected (laughs) to like a hundred pound Sony monitor. Yeah. (laughs) Broke my back. But, um, but carrying that, you know, having that equipment, but basically like learning to shoot handheld, not knowing anything about documentary filmmaking, quite frankly. Right. Right. It was, uh, informative. And what was powerful was 
kind of seeing the world framed through the camera, right? Mm. And telling stories through that just um so when i had a after immediately after my service like within two weeks i had a premonition that i had to come to los angeles specifically like to hollywood i had this vision of meeting a mentor (laughs) and indeed i met robert boyle Ah. who was my professor at the american film institute who was 90 years old at the time right uh looked like obi-wan kenobi had a white beard but beyond that he was alfred hitchcock's production designer Right. And I immediately knew that this is the guy I wanted to learn about filmmaking from. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, within a year, I was making a documentary about him, which was my first film. And of course, that film that you're referring to is The Man on Lincoln's Nose, which would go on to be nominated for Best Documentary Short Subject. How did you have sort of the the intuition uh, that Robert Boyle, a production designer, how is it that you thought this is who I should learn filmmaking from? Because I think it would be natural for most people to think I need to learn from a cinematographer. I need to learn from a producer yeah. or the director. Why did you think that, yeah, a production designer, that's who I need to learn from? It's a great question. It was, it's really about him as a person yeah. and an individual and as an artist. This is a guy who painted with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo in the 40s. He was a, he was a World War II combat cameraman right uh he you know the one film i knew and loved that he designed was like fiddler on the roof you know (laughs) and so and within minutes of meeting him i mean i just just felt like i'm in the presence of a master so meeting bob who was also a world war ii combat cameraman and you know he just felt it was you know someone who uh i was ready to learn to become an artist Hmm. And and that was the man uh, who taught me. So what happened is the minute the idea kind of entered my brain to make a movie about him, before I even approached him, I thought, all right, I mean, I got to really figure out what kind of movie I want to make. Why do I want to make it? This is not from any training. This is more instinctive. Yeah. So, But it's something that I... I highly recommend right. uh, filmmakers, documentary filmmakers alike, to do is to spend a couple of weeks just really meditating on, you know, through maybe stream of conscious writing, like what it is you want to make this story about. What is the story? What draws you to it? What are the questions that really engage you? Mm-hmm. And by the time I had filled this entire, you know, notebook, uh, and I was way too scared to ask him wow. <laughs> i think i may yeah i think i may have psyched myself out by that's right out all that material yeah too. yeah and it took a friend of mine a classmate at afi to kind of like who i confided in the next day he like joke not even jokingly he's like hey bob dan has a question for oh, you oh wow <laughs> and he put me on the spot and in what and I asked the question, you know, would would it may I make a film about your life and your work? And I'm like 22, and I've been, you know, now I'm 42, and I'm still doing this kind of work. And yeah. It's a little less scary, yes, but but because um, it's about the work, it's about you know, but but he agreed immediately, agreed, and um, <laughs> and I had to start from zero really yeah. to make that film, like in terms of not knowledge about the filmmaking process but that's really why i wanted to make the film because i felt that 
should I do a deep examination of this guy's career, right? I didn't know right. what was going to hit me. The freight train that hit me was his profound philosophical approach. Yes, right, right. <laughs> but at the time, I thought anecdotally or at least technically, like, how do you make a film? And if I, you know, because Hitchcock would leave this guy, Bob Boyle, and the cameraman, Bob Burks, alone yeah. oftentimes mm. to shoot Hitchcock's movies. <sighs> So I wanted to enter his mind and see how that was done. The production designer is responsible for the space within which the film takes place. Bob, as a production designer, could bring to each story a look that seemed to be organic, that seemed to be part of those people. And this, of course, opens doors for you, maybe unforeseen at the time, into not only meeting a world of people that are already fascinating you, but then it it, it, it has now turned into a trilogy of works about sort of, if you will, Hollywood's unsung heroes. That's right. Absolutely. So let's talk about Harold and Lillian, a, a Hollywood love story. Um, we, of course, we, we have elements of Robert Doyle interwoven within this film, but the film is, I guess, primarily about, well, Harold and Lillian. It premiered at 2015 Con. It was released theatrically fairly recently, April 2017, and soon it will have its television premiere on Turner Classic Movies. Um, right. All incredibly exciting stuff, Daniel. Uh, tell us what, uh, for our audience, just give us a real quick synopsis about Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. Harold and Lillian um, are, as you as you said, they're kind of an unsung, a couple that are unsung in terms of their contributions to American classic cinema. Um, a quick synopsis is that they eloped from Miami and got married in the late 40s. Uh, they in, in eloped to Hollywood. Harold, and they had this extraordinary marriage, family, and careers behind the scenes. That <laughs> Putting is, it lightly. It, yeah. That is only known to people that work within the industry, but they were referred to as Hollywood's secret weapon. Harold was a storyboard artist, worked with DeMille, with Hitchcock, Kubrick, Billy Wilder, Roman Polanski. I mean, he helped visualize their movies. Right. Meanwhile, Lillian had this extraordinary career as a film researcher <laughs> yeah. and had this uh, research. It would be on just having an amazing research library. She had this capacity to find out anything you need on any side of the law. Mm. And there's just these two extraordinary individuals. And what I like to do, I guess this is instinctively from the man on Lincoln's nose through the second film, the featured uh, something's gonna live, right. which is a reference to artistic legacy. And then the third film, Harold Lillian Hollywood love story is intertwine both the personal, the human of these artists, as well as their work. Mm. And so that I'm interested in, in them as human beings, yes. as role models, understanding how they you know, specifically with Harold Lillian, that had a 60-year marriage and a career in Hollywood. That <laughs> yeah, lasted he's of all years. places, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I was particularly interested in their in documenting their journey, their very intimate journey, 
through their struggles and their triumphs mm. in order to learn myself about how to get on in the world, not just as a film <laughs> maker, but as, you know, a father, a human being, you know, someone who's an, an artist basically, or, and how to balance those two. And that's, that's, that's perfect. I mean, that's just it, isn't it? Harold and Lillian, it's a wonderful love story, right? Against all odds, love prevails. You know, family can prevail, even in the face of sort of this, the idea of a Hollywood machine, right? But it's also, it's also a story of great inspiration, right? These are, these are two people who inspired a great, a great, great many people. And now I'm hearing from you as, as even as a filmmaker and as a father, like they inspired you as well. Absolutely. I brought my stuff around to all the different studios. But one day I get a call. Are you the guy who did these drawings? And I said, yes. And he says, can you come to work Monday? I said, yes. Well, I never did those drawings. Whoever did those drawings now may be selling insurance. This was for the movie Scarface. And so I go home all excited. And I say, Harold, I'm going to Bolivia or Ecuador. He says, what? Are you going to go alone to South America in a drug king's airplane? And I said, why not? Hollywood. Marriages don't seem to last very long. Our problems raising a family affected our marriage greatly. The fact that our marriage lasted 60 years is a big surprise. Harold and Lillian enhanced the quality of movies. Both of them are these secret weapons that nobody talked about, but everybody was trying to get. Most people don't know what a storyboard artist is, and yet, you know, here, it's obvious that Harold was responsible for one of the most iconic moments in cinema history. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> There's so many movies that Lillian gave nuance and texture and period to. It's good to be the king. Lillian and the facility of the library was uh, right there on the, on the lot. He was a great host until he went bankrupt. He would take for research and he would transpose it into a visual. They were like two peas in a pod. Where they were this center of knowledge and friendship and family. So the group that was doing Shrek, they decided the king and queen ought to be Harold and Lillian. You felt like you were watching the best of Hollywood. They truly were people that together created art. appreciated about Harold and Lillian and what I appreciated about your film for me was the connection I connected to the messaging about relationships it, that that's beneath Ooh. the whole story like their yeah. marvelous relationship man it's it's so obvious um, when you met these people I mean they're, they're going to touch everybody differently but it's it's obvious I think to me as a viewer and as a fellow filmmaker how much you loved these people and yeah. wanted to show them in a light that, well, it just worked what you did. You know, I, f I felt like you were showing what you felt. I appreciate that. Thank you. And what comes to mind is I think the fact that I did love them so much, it enabled me to challenge Lillian, who was the main interview subject yeah. from 2013 on. Harold, right. I'd interviewed 
before his passing multiple times, but to challenge Lillian to talk about the difficult and more challenging and less flattering aspects of their life together. Uh, of course, of course. And what I wanted to share about that was, you know, I, I re- that that was one of the one of the bigger challenges for me as a filmmaker to overcome her resistance to talking about anything personal or anything intimate. So it's sort of like mm. a, a miracle to a degree that this film was made because it was a real process to get her. And what I told her fundamentally wow. when it came to Harold's drinking and depression that over in a, in a period of time where he had this accident where an entire film set collapsed on him right. was I told her, I said, look, we, I don't want to make a film that aggrandizes Harold and puts him on it and you on a pedestal. Right. As much as I love you, I know that the audience is going to respond to that and they won't believe the story because it'll be like a, the word hagiography comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to make that. And it's really important that we talk about the difficulties you overcame and yeah. how you overcame them and really get into that in order to humanize both you and Harold. And, and, and I think that was... Uh, and a really important lesson for me. I think it's easy to think that you can simply go in with your camera and you spend an hour or two or three during a day and you've got your, you have your interview with your main subject and you've got your story when in, and and you can speak to this, that it you'll, you're never going to get to the heart of true humanizing of your subjects unless you're spending, it takes an extraordinary amount of time to spend with your subjects. Does it not? Oh yeah, no question. That's that's for sure. In this type of type of portrait film, no mm. question. You know, patience too, and yeah, and right. and a willingness to be, you know, one of the techniques that I advocate, that I appreciate in terms of documentary filmmaking, is at a point in your principal photography before mm. you dive into editing, before you even commit to a specific story, mm. to watch the footage. Uh, or certain selects from the footage sort of lined up. Let's say you've shot, you know, 30 hours. You take five of those hours. I organized, in this case, Harold Lillian's life and careers chronologically, watched it. And what I came away from that experience of watching this assembly cut, five-hour-long assembly cut, with no music, no narration, no graphics, just the footage. Mm. I wanted to see what the footage what was in the footage without any um, sort of pre sort of conceit, you know, cause I had my thoughts prior to that, but uh, let's see what we really got. Right. And what I learned from that experience was that the deeper, more interesting, more emotionally compelling story was Lillian's inner story. Uh. And it, it superseded anything that else that I, you know, and, and how she overcame childhood trauma yeah yeah being raised in orphanages and had this kind of amazing life where she was a sort of feminist self-made woman very witty very funny great storyteller like all these things sort of took me by surprise and i said okay let's take this is so beautiful let's start to follow this anyhow so i think that's that's really important in documentary filmmaking to be open to uh um to different different paths in terms of storytelling. 
Daniel, let's make our our um, transition over to script writing and how that works for for us in the documentary world. What are the major differences that you have found between script writing, say, for features versus sure. script writing for docs? I mean, I can speak to that question by yeah. t- by by talking a little bit about the challenge I faced with Harold Lillian in that, yeah. you know, I had a narrative which by the way the you know you 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 referenced the word narrative earlier it's a narrative applies to fiction nonfiction you're telling a story yeah. but what i think i would have set you know defined myself more as an essay filmmaker before that and this was the first time i was taking head on a real character driven piece right and in that i had to really educate myself about basically the the the, the challenge is mm. how do you tell a story that's more or less chronological and not bore the hell out of the audience <laughs> right? with, with a structure that sounds like this happened, then this happened, yep. then this yep. happened, yep. then this happened. And while it's interesting what's happening, it's not dramatic. You know, so Harold Lillian was really a two year process from June, 2013 saying, I'm going to make this movie to May, 2015 mm. when we premiered it at the Cannes film festival. Okay. Okay. And that, timeline was like a couple months of interviewing and then the rest of it was editing and continuing to film at the same time. Mm. But during that time I had to pull the brakes like about halfway through um, a year into it because I realized I really didn't have the kind of wherewithal from a, you know, from dramatic construction. So I really paused and re-studied drama to a degree and what makes, you know, how do you, create a scene or create momentum that sets up a question and then, you know, answers the question rather than this happened. It's more like it's a different kind of construction. It's this happened. Therefore this has happened or this happened, but that also, you know, it's sort of your strike creating more of a dynamic structure and inter interconnecting uh, pieces that, that aren't, are more a, structured on a dramatic emotional basis but but then how do you how do you apply that once you i guess once you had that realization a year in what what changes did you make well in terms of workflow and why do i why is there a step called the script writing process yeah i would trans have all the material transcribed all the interviews transcribed yes and there was this i wish i had a photo of this but there was a point where Jenna and I didn't even use the editing software. We did a paper edit, a paper like edit, created right. a real script. And I would actually have this system where I would take all the transcripts, put it into final draft. Yeah. All the dialogue would be like the, have the same formatting as a script. Mm-hmm. And instead of a, a slug line, which is, you know, uh, interior, exterior, the location, time of day, I would create the subject heading. Okay. And we would, with scissors, tape, paper everywhere, these transcripts would start to create a construction and intertwine very carefully intertwining the, the, the family story, the, and I'm about to answer your question, the career story, the inner story, the personal stories, and find the tension between the themes that start to create a narrative spine and fundamentally without kind of giving away the ending, arriving at how I'm going to end the film about yes. halfway through. Yeah, that yeah. was a true moment of inspiration for me. But even listening to Bill Moyers 
in conversation with Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The great Joseph Campbell. And, <laughs> and, and Joseph Campbell said to Bill Moyers at one point, there's a moment in, in, in all of our lives, not just superheroes, but in the everyday person, that we truly become the hero of our own life, mm-hmm. where that mask is removed. And you start to think about real people but you take the story of real people, just like you would in a fiction film, but you're not inventing it because you're using the substance of real life mm. and creating the mythology, in a, if, if you will, of their life in a structure, in a narrative structure that is not that different from how one would approach a fiction film. The only true difference is that we're not making this up. We're making up the structure. And that's where the real work comes in. Not in the new, in my opinion, of a great film, not in the nuance, so to speak speak of you know how sophisticated the editing is and how the images pop and the yeah. photos pop and all that fancy stuff that right. you know moves genuinely moves the film become but becomes more of spectacle related than emotion related so i like to get inside the characters and really tell the story from their emotional point of view and i wanted to create a film puts the audience in the shoes of Harold Lillian and mm. goes, takes them on that journey. Right, so that's that the big question journey. mark. How do we do that? Let's talk about the approach to a document, to writing a script for a documentary. On my first doc journey to Kathmandu, I did not have a script. I, and I, and in fact, I never even had, you know, I never had anything close to a paper cut and it took me three years to edit what ultimately was a 35 minute documentary and mm-hmm. and 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 for me i think my thought was always well in documentary why would run have a script it's just you sit down and you watch the footage you sure. have an idea what the story is because you went and you 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 know what you shot you're sitting down and you can look at the footage let's just start assembling this footage and and yeah. i'm speaking from you know first hand experience i will never do that approach again um, hmm. and, and of course, you know, with our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, you know, we have a paper cut, like you alluded to earlier, which is what you guys did with Harold and Lillian, uh, yeah. speak to my filmmakers so they can avoid, you know, they can avoid that mistake and uh, of sitting down and hmm. saying, you know what, I don't need to write a script. That's what people do for feature films. Speak, I guess, more eloquently than I am about the importance sure. of why the script is essential for a documentary every bit as much as it is for, you know, for a feature film. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's a few things to say about that. I'm going to try to articulate this in the time we have. First of all, a script for a doc can be, as far as I'm concerned, on the back of a napkin, bullet points of your structure, Mm. you know, and that could take a year, two years to come up with that (laughs) bullet point of a structure on the back of a napkin. Yeah, really good. (laughs) I advocate using three by five index cards the same way a fiction film Mm -hmm. writer will have each scene on a card and a big board where you're moving those cards around and remove, you know, I advocate a lot of the same tools, right? A lot of the same principles and ideas that go into making a a fiction film. Right. I mean, in the masterclass that you have, you have like these eight to 12, I think it's like eight to 12 sort of acts, right? That you're, you're, you're building out and separating. Sequences. Sequences, I love working in sequences. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, a sequence could be anywhere from eight to twelve minutes, 
and you have anywhere from eight to 12 sequences in okay. film. Okay. So it really helps you organize your story, really. And because the, 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 you know, there's, there's verete documentaries, uh, we're following a character in life where it's not a talking head documentary. So it's very, there's different types of approaches to filmmaking, but that back of the napkin is going to be the same with a talking heads documentary, which is sort of interview driven, let's say, you know, yes. like 20 feet from stardom to a degree, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. You want to transcribe the material, the, the, the footage you, you shot, the interviews you shot, because I mean, it, it goes all the way down from big topic to the soundbite. Where are you going to put that soundbite to really emphasize the story? And you're also using a lot of the same tools of the fiction film that again the difference is you're not making this up you're finding this but you're organizing it creatively organizing mm, it mm. in the same way a, a fiction screenwriter would to a degree you know organize his material i think it's really important to watch movies and analyze them like not just documentaries but fiction films mm. as well I think uh, in the documentary scriptwriting masterclass that's on Faith Fuller's documentary, desktop documentary, I even go into, I do like scene analysis, like the first 10 minutes of Man on Wire, the first 10 minutes of Herzog's Grizzly Man, right? Yes. And it's fascinating to pick apart <laughs> the thinking that goes into the first 10 minutes of a documentary. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And it's so different than a fiction film because clearly you're dealing with very different mode of storytelling so it's really i think really helpful in terms of learning how and that's the script right yeah. the script doesn't look like a physical script in your hand although it can and should be i in fact i just spoke uh made a little film about marcel ofuls who was here in los angeles last mm. week mm. uh sorrow and the pity the documentary filmmaker of sorrow and the pity yes. and um so much more and I talked to him about his filmmaking, documentary filmmaking process, and I was happy to learn. It's very similar to what I teach and advocate in this master class in terms okay. of having your footage transcribed. And he, he will spend three, four months organizing that footage yeah. by himself. And so that's the script writing process. You're, it's, 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 it, it's indeed script writing to a degree because you're writing, you know, and whether you're writing on a computer in Final Cut Pro or mm. whatever editing program you're using to organize your ideas. Well, let's talk about your, the documentary script writing masterclass that you, that you currently have over at Faith Fuller's desktop documentaries uh, website. And, and, and I mentioned early on that, you know, we've had faith on here a couple, a couple of times on the program. If someone wants to, to get into your, to the script writing, the documentary script writing masterclass, Daniel, what can they expect to see is going to be sort of the overall approach that you're going to give them with the masterclass? Thank you for asking. I, re I think I'm th I think about, you know, it took me like half a year to, to make this class, which wow. is a combination of videos and and uh, exercises uh, for your to, to, for your own film. And I what, what you can expect in, 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 and also what is that masterclass to mm. a degree? It's 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 my workflow, my A to Z of how do I start a doc and how do I take it all the way step by step mm. through post-production mm. And it gets very technical at times. Like I really give you every step you need to transcribe your footage, to uh, how to cross-reference a transcript, yeah, yeah, and a paper edit yep, with yep. a rough cut. And and my philosophy in terms of the script writing process, which we talked about, is really about structure, is to move between 
the rough cut and the paper edit back and forth. So you see it and develop your project mm. on in different mediums. Mm. And ultimately at one point you let go of the paper edit and you're really just in fine cut mode or, you know, extensive rough cut, fine cut mode. The documentary script writing masterclass, it, it seems to be, and this is taken from the website, it provides a roadmap for tackling sort of every aspect of conceiving, scripting, shooting, and assembling the documentary, right? But I think maybe yeah. most importantly, um, it will show it will show someone how to find the heart of the story, you know, that's waiting that's right. to be told. And that's yeah. really, and that's really valuable. So, Say, uh, you know, one of my listeners, they have, you know, a filmmaker has a, a bunch of film shot, right? Um, they've got a bunch of footage. Is this is this course going to be helpful to help them discover what the heart of that story is? And, and, and how will it do that if so? Right. Well, a lot of what we talked about, you know, in this just from the beginning of our discussion yeah. goes over a lot of the techniques I use, including the assembly cut, yeah. you know, looking at that five hour cut and letting that having a dialogue is very, but it's not, not only does the course and my intention of writing this course help students beginning documentary filmmakers and, you know, first time, second, third time, whatever. But my intention is to investigate or help the student investigate the heart of the story as it relates to what they are passionate about as it relates to their own personal convictions. Uh, because if you're not finding that the interconnection between the material and your own heart and mind and soul, then the viewers are going to not feel your heart and mind and soul. And then another aspect that, you know, that the, the this masterclass, this kind of course offers is the fundamentals of the core building blocks of the storytelling process as I learned them and as I used them to make Carol and Lillian or as I observed them in other documentaries right. so that the students can reflect on their material, their values, their ideas, and the story they want to tell and have a container of sorts like the sequence, the, the sequence process to not make your film this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah, yeah. How do you engage? It really asks and addresses and hopefully doesn't answer because that has to come from within you, the student. But it asks the question, how do you make a film engaging? How do you connect your, your, the, the narrative, the story you want to tell, whether it's an essay film or character-driven film, to an audience that, that, that wants to share in that experience? And whether it's seen on the big screen or Netflix, you know? We're talking with Daniel Rain, the Academy Award nominated scriptwriter, and specifically right now we've been talking about this the documentary scriptwriting masterclass. Which, if you're interested in, you can uh, head on over to desktopdocumentaries.com. Any of my um, listeners who've been listening to TDL for a while will recognize desktopdocumentaries.com because we've had the the uh, the founder and curator Faith Fuller here on the program. Um, a couple of times already in the past year. If you are interested, and I, I, I can't really recommend this enough, I've gone through a bit of it myself, and now hearing you talk about it, uh, Daniel, uh, at more length, it's obvious how much time you've spent putting into this. It's obvious the expertise and, and thoroughness and thought of which you bring to this masterclass. Um, I would encourage 
uh, any of my listeners, if you are interested in doc in 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 the scriptwriting aspect of your documentary, whatever stage you're in, check out the, the documentary scriptwriting masterclass. And and right now we are actually offering um, through cooperation with Desktop Documentaries a 25% discount specifically for for you, my listeners. And all you have to do is you can either go to the the documentarylife.com website, go to the show notes for this particular show, or go to the store and there will be a link there, or you can go to the desktopdocumentaries.com website. Either or, it's just important that when you check out, simply use the discount code MYDOCLIFE, and that's all in caps, MYDOCLIFE, and that'll give you um, uh, the 25% discount um, on, uh, on Daniel Rames' Documentary Scriptwriter Masterclass. And, and that discount also works for other products through um, through desktop documentaries. It's much appreciated, you know, and as salesy as it might sound, yeah. our goal, Faith and I, coming together to sort of develop and put this online is really to help, help people and helps young filmmakers and older filmmakers alike. Yeah. So please, by all means, <laughs> because ultimately we're, you know, this is to, to help serve in, to help the world <laughs> with That's right. better stories, you know, a better, a better world with better stories. And I also wanted to add very quickly that yes. I just did a quick check and it's desktop dash documentaries.com. Indeed, so, indeed. The film, your film that uh, is currently out in theaters uh, is Harold and Lillian. Tell us when when and how we can see it. I know it's going to be upcoming on, on Turner, Turner Classics. Um, tell us about right. how we can see Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. Sure. Thank you for asking. So our Los Angeles run just ended. We're opening in other select cities nationwide throughout the U.S. It's opening all over Northern California uh, in late July, uh, including the Roxy Theater in San Francisco and in Berkeley. And to see the play dates, uh, go to uh, heraldandlillian.com. And there's a button called play dates and you'll be able to see if it's playing in a theater near you. And if it isn't, there's also a demand the film button where we can learn about where you are and um, try to find a way to get the film there. That's right. Yeah, I love it. Daniel Rain, this has been a tremendous conversation. I am so excited about it. It's, it's been great to meet you. And there is so much to 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 be had here for any number of our filmmakers that, that listen to this show. So I can't thank you enough. Likewise. Thank you, Chris. It's been great speaking with you. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.